This is the Monday, January 16th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. The next war, that is why you occupy Germany, to make that next war impossible. No easy job. Remember that only yesterday, every business, every profession was part of Hitler's system. The doctors, technicians, clockmakers, postmen, farmers, housekeepers, toy makers, barbers, cooks, dock workers. Practically every German was part of the Nazi network. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back to one of the darkest corners of the past, the Auschwitz concentration camp in occupied Poland. It's worth noting that the Auschwitz-Birkenau Museum and Memorial will commemorate the 72nd anniversary of the site's liberation later this month, January 27th, 2017. The horrors of the Third Reich still whisper a warning from history, warnings that compel us to breathe life into the phrase never again with our actions, to ensure that those aren't just words we say, not just a bumper sticker slogan, but words that carry real meaning. This week, Patricia Posner does just that with her story. It's the first bio of SS officer Victor Capesius and his remarkable, almost completely unknown tale from the Holocaust, where the Romanian-born German worked closely with Dr. Joseph Mengele, branded as the angel of death for his infamous crimes. As people climbed off the trains, they would see Capesius standing there, and some of them even recognized him. But he was not there as their friend. Not anymore. Patricia Posner's book is The Pharmacist of Auschwitz, the untold story. It explores the man in charge of Hitler's grim chemicals of mass murder. Patricia Posner is a British-born writer who has worked with her husband Gerald Posner on 12 nonfiction books including Mengele, The Complete Story, Hitler's Children, and most recently, God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. You can hear our interview on that book in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening. And you can find today's guest online at trishaposner.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-A, short for Patricia, as it says on the book cover. Or on Twitter at Trisha Posner. And for the book, she has her own Twitter handle, which is Auschwitz Farm and the Digit One. That's P-H-A-R-M, short for pharmacist. Okay. Now that we've learned a little bit about our topic, let's join Patricia Posner and confront the pharmacist of Auschwitz. I'm joined on the line by Patricia Posner, author of The Pharmacist of Auschwitz, The Untold Story. You can find her at trishaposner.com, that's T-R-I-S-H-A, and on Twitter at Trisha Posner, or the account for the book is Auschwitz Farm, short for pharmacist, and the digit one. And that last name is spelled P-O-S-N-E-R, Posner. Welcome to the History Author Show. I'm so excited to talk about this book. Thank you very much for having me, Dean. Much appreciated. 
Joseph Mengele's name is of such infamy, such a level of infamy, up there maybe only with Hitler himself after the war, that you'll still see it invoked for acts of inhumanity, most recently those of disgraced Dr. Kermit Gosnell. So why are we only learning the name Victor Capesius in the pages of the pharmacist of Auschwitz, even though he's right there at Mengele's side, during the cruelties of the death camp, and during the process of selecting who's going to live and who's going to die. You know, very few Nazis who served at Auschwitz became infamous enough to be known widely by the general public. And Mengele is an exception because he got away with his infamy. His infamy grew as he stayed free, and he became a larger-than-life character. You know, there were movies made about him, The Boys from Brazil... And, you know, people had these images of him being surrounded by guard dogs in Argentina. When you think of it, more than 7,000 SS men and women served at Auschwitz and only 800 were ever convicted of any crime. So most of them, like Capesius, are small cogs in the Nazi killing machine. And their names are mostly unknown outside of the people who study the Holocaust. I think that's the big part of it. The idea here, you said a small cog. Your first chapter is titled Pharmacist Uncle. And having read the book now, my skin crawls reading the phrase. You know, you think of the trust there that you have in an uncle. I'm an uncle. I have a whole mess of nieces and a nephew, even a great nephew. And, you know, I, I take that very seriously, that relationship. Later in the book, there's a reprint of Victor Capacius's bare business card with just an aspirin tablet stamped on it. Mm -hmm. And again, that imagery is, you know, an an aspirin. What could be something that would be more comforting? You know, it's this phrase, the banality of evil. We hear it so much that I guess maybe it's become a little bit banal itself. It could have been printed right on that card. It could have been right under his business title because that's what this man becomes. These trusting Jewish neighbors arrive on the train and they see him standing there side by side with Mengele and they feel relief. Yes. And ima- imagine that. Imagine that, yeah. that train ride. Imagine the horrors and the terror and trying to comfort your children and you see this man who is a neighbor and an uncle and a person you went to when you were sick for comfort. Very well said. Tell us who is the pharmacist of Auschwitz before the war when he is this pharmacist uncle? Well, he's a rather ordinary, unremarkable person. Capesus was born in Romania to an educated middle-class family of German heritage. His father was a physician and a health officer. He was an average student in Romania. He got his pharmacy degree in Vienna in the 30s when Nazis were on the rise in Germany. He met his wife, his future wife, Fritzi, in school in Vienna. She was a pharmacist, which is another interesting part of the story. She had a Jewish father. I think she had converted to Lutherism he evidently didn't bother Capetius at the time. Huh. So that's uh, quite an interesting part of the story, I think. And in Romania, he went and worked for there uh, and that, as a national sales rep. He crisscrossed the country. Several thousands of his customers were Jews, doctors, pharmacists, clinicians, even textile manufacturers who needed bare dyes. Some of Capetius' his friends were hardline anti-Semites. No evidence with him showing any of it. Instead, his focus was basically on business, not on politics. So it's, it's an interesting story, I must say. And after he was drafted into the Romanian military, he got leave to continue his bare job. All changed, I think, around about 1943 when he was drafted into the Waffen SS. It's just an ordinary man in a situation. It's just an ordinary man, pharmacist, selling his goods, as you said, to these Jewish people that are that seeing him on the ramp. It's a remarkable story in that way to think that you could be a Jewish pharmacist buying your wares from him and then all of a sudden you get off the train at the ramp and you think, oh wow, that looks like Victor Capesius. I'm going to be fine. Right there he can either say life or death, right or left. One will live and one will die. And of course the ones that did live just went to slave labor camps. You know, they were worked to death. And he was dividing families. We were fortunate enough that this was only fiction and not truth. He would say, what's the most hideous thing this person could do to divide families? Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And and then to say to the husband, don't worry, I'm going to take care of your wife and daughter, knowing they're going straight to the gas chamber. And of course, the husband doesn't know because all those people coming on those trains with their suitcase and their worldly goods of, what was it, 40 kilos, 
really thought they were going to be relocated. I mean, those that survived on the trains, if they didn't die from starvation, thirst or whatever, really thought they were going to be relocated and, and things were going to be fine. And it's amazing to think that this person made that decision with life and death. It's extraordinary. In, in a way, it got easier for him as time went on. You know, you lose your humanity, like you said. There's no empathy left. It just becomes a job. And that's what he did. He, he lost himself. Do I know whether he would have been like this out of the camp? Who knows? We don't know. I have discussed this with Gerald before. If I was in that camp, I just can't see myself being able to do it. It just would be impossible. And there has to be something there, but I'm not qualified to tell you what or how or when. Yeah, there has to be some crack in your humanity that allows yeah. you know, that crack slowly hammer away and you have to have some expert people like the Nazis were experts at persuasion, experts at twisting people to get at that crack and hammer at it and hammer at it. You know, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, if you take it to the other half where, you know, Gerald did his book, Mengele, Mengele was always into science and genetics and things like that. This was just a pharmacist. He was just selling his goods. It was a completely different type of person. It's very scary, very scary to think of it. I want to go back to the mid-1980s where you get the germ of this idea from Rolf Mengele, who's burdened with his father's legacy here as the angel of death. He plants this seed that grew into the pharmacist of Auschwitz. You mention his father here, his narrow escape with Capetius's help in the pharmacist of Auschwitz. And so he plays a role there in helping Mengele eventually grow into this dark legend here in South America that ends up in these movies and this kind of thing. Right. Now that's three decades ago. So I wonder why did this story nag at you for three decades? What took you through that long period of time without writing it? And when did you realize that Yes, now's the time. I, I need to finally sit down and I'm ready to tell this story. Well, I've been writing with Gerald for many years on and off. I've always been researching with him, writing with him. And uh, Mengele of a Complete Story, he started doing that book, that, which was one of his first books, obviously. We would go and do the research together, interview people together. But this book was odd for me in the sense being Jewish and being brought up, you know, orthodox but modern conservative Jew, it was really very hard for me to research with him at times because I didn't know who I was going to meet to interview. When the bones of Mengele were found in Embo, Gerald was sent out and he met the son then. And then when he came back, he set up another meeting because he was going to do a show, if you remember, back in the day with Phil Donahue. Mm -hmm. And Phil Donahue was going to have... Ralph Mengele and Gerald on together. So Gerald said, we're going to go to meet Ralph in New York. And I was so uncomfortable, even though I knew you can't blame the children for the sins of the father, I just was not comfortable. I just, maybe coming from this Jewish background, I, w I had all things going through my head. Oh, who's going to see me? What will my mother think? It was a, a crazy when I look back at it now, but it was just not comfortable. So we eventually did meet with him, and he was as uncomfortable with me as I was with him, to tell you the truth. And he was very forthcoming, and then he started talking about how his father was helped by this couple, the pharmacists. They were in, in pharmacy, a couple. And at the same time when he was talking about this, he mentioned a friend of theirs, called Victor Capetius that was a pharmacist of Auschwitz. And in my head, maybe because I was in my late 20s or something, I just thought, pharmacist in Auschwitz? What an odd thing. It just didn't compute. And it planted this little seed in my head. And it was there for a long time. And then I was consumed with Gerald's other books that were coming out at the time. So I never really had time to do much more. And around about... 2000, I embarked on a solo project on a memoir of me going through menopause. And then I reissued a new book, No Hormones, No Fear, which was an update to that in 2003. So you can see the time frame was there. For decades, I've been thinking about it. 
Then in 2011, a Romanian novelist wrote the book The Druggist of Auschwitz, a novel in which he featured Capetius and also was very lucky to be able to interview him before his death in 1985. So that created another bit of interest again. And that gave me some extra push to complete the first nonfiction book. I was very lucky. In 2015, I found Christopher Lascelles, who runs a small independent publishing company, Crux, and has a great interest in World War II books. So I, I made a full commitment to continue with it. And with Jill's encouragement, I just continued and continued and continued. And it was one of the, these projects that just kept growing uh, through the time. And yet the book is not a big, thick tome. Yeah, it's not a, I, I, I know it's not a thick book, but believe it or not, this small little book, this little gem, took so much work, so much research, so much, you know, translations, digging into archives, digging into all the documents. Uh, I had to do searching in England, Romania, Germany. And it's hard to imagine that this little gem, as I say again, of a book, took a tremendous amount of work and energy and strength for me. I, I, it's just, just amazing because everything had to be documented. I had to double check certain things. Then you have to have translators help you with certain documents. Hmm. The book could have been about 500 pages and it especially would have been that way if I would have left it to Gerald, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I had to calm him down at times. He would say, look at this. I say, I'm not doing that. It's about to Capetus. We can't, no, 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 we have to stop. Well, I say it really with respect and admiration, and I want people to know that because, oh, is this going to be a thick book with a lot of medical names and terms and jargon? And it's not that. And I've mentioned before that quote attributed to Mark Twain that, sorry, I wrote you a long letter. I would have written you a short one, but I didn't have the time. And when you edit and focus, especially if you fly somewhere, let's say, you know, if you go to London and you dig through some archives and you spend two days and you find some stuff, man, there's a temptation to show your research in the book. You want to cram all that in there. Right. And that's one of the reasons it's great. You have this Auschwitz Farm One Twitter feed, for example, and you have TrishaPosner.com. You can share some of that stuff nowadays where, you know, if you'd written this when you were in your 20s, we didn't have the internet yet. Oh, I'm very focused. I'm very good sticking to my story the story is personal you know for both the personal story and the dark world of Capetius but also the personal story of you know two men that chased him until they brought him to trial Bauer and Langby I mean they just did not stop you know a survivor and uh, as Bauer was he just did not give up I mean we owe the story to these two people I got it as a PDF, and I don't usually read books. I read them in the old book form. You know, I want to be able to hear shuffling the papers, everybody. That's magic to me, so I love that. And with this book, you sent it to me as a PDF, and you said, I'm sorry that there's the watermark on it. Frankly, I nagged you for the book. I was so excited to read it when I found out about it. Very enthusiastic. And the watermark disappeared. It didn't matter to me that I was reading it on a PDF. I was just so absorbed by it. And it was a fast read. It was very on point. I mean, I look for the strings here. I look for the hands of the author. And you really kept that focused on him. Something like, for instance, the Zyklon B. Right. That's one of the main points of attack for people who want to say that the Holocaust never happened. You hear that out of the Iranian dictatorship all the time. Well, it couldn't have happened. That that didn't exist. There wasn't that much of it. You discuss that here in a very real way that's relatable. You don't get into it as a chemist or as a pharmacist or as somebody who's going to go through the science of it necessarily, but the personal way that they're experimenting with it and trying to limit their supply or trying to conserve their supply. And there's one story that you focus on there that I think it brings together all these things I'm talking about, about focusing the narrative and making the research very human and relatable. And that's the moment that they find this young girl, a teenage girl, alive there after they've gassed everybody else in the room. Tell that story a little bit. Where did you come across that? It's a very, very disturbing story. It was recounted by an inmate doctor, actually, that treated uh, the girl Nishli. And so that's how I came across the story. You know, the Nazis were all about money. It was all about money. And everything they did, 
it's a terrible thing to say, but it's almost like a corporation. Where can we cut costs, you know? And that was one area they were trying to cut costs because Cyclone B was a poison that was used in the gas chamber. It was colorless, it was odorless, and it was an insecticide. They were trying to find out how could they cut down. I mean, they used to kill, say, 2,000 Jews in each gassing. So they wanted to cut it down to 15 canisters from 20 canisters because this would save them money. But unfortunately, what happened, it extended the time to an excruciating 20 minutes for them to die. This particular story that you mentioned that you're talking about was that one day the Sunder Commandos, which were the Jews that were assigned the most gruesome task of removing the bodies after they were gassed. And so this particular Sunder Commando found, when he was pulling the bodies out, he found a 15-year-old girl that was still alive beneath the mountain of naked bodies. She was naked, obviously, and she, but she was moving. So they summoned an inmate doctor, Nishley, who went running with his doctor's bag into the gas chamber, and she was laying next to the wall. He could see that she was definitely still breathing, and the bodies were on top of her. And his words that came out were, it was a very odd way of saying it, that she was a wonderfully beautiful, like an angel breathing her last breath lying there. And so the doctor freed her body from the others, carried her to the Sunder Commander's room where they used to change their clothes, and laid her on a bench. And when he laid her on the bench, he gave her several injections to her heart to try to bring her back. And at the same time, they were putting uh, uh, like their overcoats on top of her to warm her up and giving her soup and drinks to revive her. It, it was almost like they were fighting to save their own child's life. It was just a, a surreal type of thing. If you can imagine this girl, I mean, this is just one of, but unfortunately, when the Nazis discovered that she was being treated, they got so panicked that if she was to go out there, that she would talk about it and destabilize everybody and it would create panic outside. So the Nazis took her out and shot her in the head. It's a very, very disturbing story because they're fighting for this child's life and then they bring her back and then that's it. And shot in the head. Think about it, shot in the head. Mm. And this is only time we know of a survivor in this gas chamber in this circumstances. This is the only story that I have heard like this. It's like a place of death that had a moment of life and that they all became human and alive and nurturing. They were nurturing, you know, it was like, we're going to save her and then boom, in an instance, they're back to reality again. It's like a shot of cold water thrown on you. You talk about some of those things in the book about how the descriptions of living there and the oh. horrors of being in the camp. It's nothing like oh. nothing like we see replicated in the movies. It's nothing like you can even no. describe. It's the complete absence of life. It's complete absence of joy. Of they're barely being fed. And you know, you say a doctor here running and getting his book. People learn as they read the pharmacist of Auschwitz that this is not as if they're being treated well or treated special. They're taken out of the line and their whole family are killed by guys here like Capesius that tells them, you go this way, you have a skill, we need you, right. like you said, to plug into their machine. And it's stunning that they use these people as slave labor, but they make no effort to feed them. I mean, this is another way that people justify. They say, well, with the slaves, they'd have to treat them well because you don't want them to die. Then you have to retrain and that's your investment. Well, that's not the case here. There's a limitless oh. supply of people and they just were, are working them to death. It's so yeah. inefficient. You know, it's interesting you should say that because at times I would think, you know, before I really got deeply into it, you know, why wouldn't you feed them and clothe them and take care of them if you want? But they, like you just said, they didn't care. They just worked them to death. They had an endless supply of workers. And the Nazis made everyone less than human. I mean, when you hear someone saying being worked to death, they were. Okay, done, 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 worked to death. Also, when you were talking about when they were working at Monowitz, where they were doing Boomer, you know, for their products, 
they would put three in the bunk instead of one in the bunk, and then they sort it out. Well, if they had 1,200 calories, then they can work so long, so within so many months, they're away, you know, this weight. I mean, it just, they had everything so precisely planned out. They knew exactly how they were going to do it, you know. And then the other thing that I think was so astonishing to me, I had to read it several times, was the roll call that because they were paying for each person, they made the carry the dead back. And this was in the freezing cold winter or the boiling hot summers, and they would wear those wooden clogs and those thin fabrics. I don't even know how they lasted as long as they did. I mean, look, you have a cough, I get cold, we feel ghastly, dreadful. I mean, how they lived on how anyone survived, I really don't understand it. I really don't. I know that they say there's a will, there's a way, but the amount of diseases and illnesses these people got, I don't know how they survived. Well, and they sucked out their will. They sucked out their literal will to live. You yep. you would think reading these things in these conditions, these are terrible. And the reason I, that I said inefficient is this was a myth after the war and that people still talk about. It's the famous Patterns of Force Star Trek episode, or maybe you'd say infamous when they go to the Nazi planet and they say, well, it was the most efficient state. This was a myth that picked up in the 60s. Right. Now right. in Europe, as we see a neo-Nazi resurgence, mm. this is sort of the same kind of thing we think. Well, naturally socialism was efficient this was a this is a mess this is not efficient this wouldn't be efficient if you were running any business and yet they decide to come in here farben again ig farben it's almost a character in your book at the time fourth largest company in the world at the time france falls in 1940 it has an incredible role here in the holocaust and i wanted you to tell us a little bit what becomes of its people and its parts, including Capesius, in the aftermath of the war? Farben is a very interesting part of this, obviously, because of the Camp Monowitz. Hitler and Nazis had a love-hate relationship with Farben. The dislike between Farben, because it had so many Jewish scientists and so many Jewish executives, it's like it had the latest technology, synthetic rubber, oil, and Hitler wanted to be self-sufficient, because of, he had such a bad taste in his mouth about World War I debacle that he wanted to make everything quite right at this point. And, you know, he kicked out all the Jews from the labs by, what, 1938. So it needed that enormous plant, which they had in Auschwitz. They built it in Poland, which was only four miles away from Auschwitz. And Farben paid the Nazis, what, for tens of thousands of Auschwitz slaves labors, more than 25,000 were eventually worked to death, 25,000. And then after the war, 24 senior farming executives were charged for war crimes. The charges included slave labor and mass murder. It took nearly two years and 100 witnesses to testify. And the prosecutors were stunned when 10 of the Farben executives, including the director who had run the company and responsible for the Cyclone B, were acquitted on all charges. There were 12 directors convicted to sentences. They were very, very lenient. I think most around two years. And some of them got suspended later. For the company itself, you know, Farben itself, as for the company itself, the Allies dissolved Farben in 1951. And the four companies that emerged were enormous. It was pharma company Bayer, Agfa Imaging Products, BASF, world largest chemical company, Hosh, chemical and science giants. And by the time most of Farben executives were convicted of war crimes, they had been freed from jail. They returned to uh, some of the most powerful positions in German business. Three of them became chairman of Bayer and BASF and Hosh. They just put on suits. They took off the uniforms and put on suits. Just put, Yeah, you're right. They just put on suits and they continued in the role that they were before in just the normal life in the normal. I mean, to think they probably had no remorse, no conscience. They just got into that new executive chair and into that suit, like you said, and they just continued working and everything was just fine. Let's get on with it. Who knows what they were thinking at the time? I don't know. I just, they just didn't care. It was about money. That's all it was about. 
my guest you're listening to with so much passion in her voice and who's brought us this little gem of a book is Patricia Posner, author of The Pharmacist of Auschwitz, The Untold Story. You can find her at trishaposner.com, that's T-R-I-S-H-A, and on Twitter at trishaposner.com, that's Posner with an S. For the book, you can find her on Twitter at Auschwitz Farm One, short for pharmacist, with the digit one there at the end. And that's a great place where she's going to share some of this research that doesn't make it into the book, but is still compelling nonetheless. Kirkus Review wrote of the pharmacist of Auschwitz, quote, Posner tells the story of a middling ethnic German man from a small Transylvanian town who gained his pharmaceutical doctorate degree from the University of Vienna and eventually landed a plum job as a national sales rep for Bayer, IG Farben's drug subsidiary. You write in the book about him being this cog, this small cog in the machine. You've mentioned it a couple of times today. When I interviewed Andrew Nagorski for his book, The Nazi Hunters, he said that there was little appetite for going after those smaller pieces of the regime, the little gears, you know, not the big fish. And the West wants to put it behind them. They want to get the Germans to work against the Soviets. The Soviets are at work in East Germany trying to turn that into a socialist utopia. The cheering Nazi crowds, they want to all take off the uniform, put away the flags, get rid of Mein Kampf that they were required to have in their house. The women who had gazed at pictures of Hitler during childbirth, they wanted to get rid of those. There was simply nobody anymore that claimed that they had supported Hitler. So I wonder how those attitudes help Victor Capesius lie his way through the denazification process that he does go through and simply try to pick up his life after the defeat and also lie to himself, completely forget about this role he played in this mass murder at Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. True and part. I mean, I think the general reluctance by the Germans to pursue war crimes and to move forward, the forward attitude was very hard, but, you know, for instance, in four years after the war, the Allies convicted over 4,000 Nazis. And then in 1955, the first year of the full German control, only 21 convictions. So it's hard to imagine, isn't it, really? And then in 1950, about 2,000 open investigations, fewer than 200 by the 1950s. And Capetius benefited from this great chaos at the end of the war. Millions of dispatched persons. Every German had to fill in the questionnaire. Few workers in denazification tribunals were overwhelmed. The backlog was enormous. So Capetius could keep flip-flopping and lying and no one caught him. He just, you know, it was, it was just complete chaos. Language barriers, documents. He, he just kept on getting lucky as well. I think that's you know, a good part of it. And the lack of desire by the Germans to pursue it, no doubt, was a big thing. Well, you had a pretty good cover, this whole idea of being a pharmacist. You can work anywhere. People always are going to need a pharmacist. And it just seems like the last place you would find mm-hmm. a Nazi uniform, to talk about clothes again, would be under that white pharmacist jacket. You, you don't look for that there. No, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. It was an excellent cover. And his denial anyway was just amazing. You know, this man really didn't think he was doing anything wrong. He felt like the victim. You know, I, I had to go and work in Auschwitz. I could have continued, you know, being a, a representative, farmer's representative and been married with my three children. I didn't have to do this. He, he really felt like he was a victim. He had no remorse whatsoever. I just think he really felt like the victim. Someone had sent him a bad set of cards there. He just had nothing in him. You write in The Pharmacist of Auschwitz, quote, It's one thing to be accused of murdering Jews who were considered less than human by the Third Reich, thought Capesius, but it was insulting to be marked publicly as no better than a grave robber, unquote. You talk there about how this was theft, pure and simple. This was the stealing, not just of everything they had, but ultimately their lives. The Up to their last breath is that story of the young girl you spoke about. I came to conclude as I read that, and I read it multiple times, that you write it in The Pharmacist of Auschwitz, that 
I felt a little protective for the grave robbers because there's more honor in grave robbing than what Capesius does in the course of the war. So describe exactly how he did prey on his victims. Well, you know, the Nazis were to force the inmate dentists a ghastly task of praying the gold out from the mouth of corpses. And those dental fillings were part of an astonishing 65 to 75 pounds of gold reaped daily from Auschwitz. Everything from coins, watches, cigarette cases, jewelry, anything that was of gold, obviously. And all that dental gold was crammed into large trunks and stored in the camp's chief's SS dentist, who happened to share the same building as Capesis had his pharmacy. And it was a gruesome collection. I think, you know, when you read it, the witnesses describe the suitcases filled with gold teeth, some dentures, pieces of jaws, bits of flesh, all of it reeking from rotting odor for decompensation. You know, an inmate who worked for Capesius saw him digging one time through this stinking mess and watched in horror as Capesius pulled out dentures and tried eliminating the teeth from it and, and pulling the gold. I mean, it's just a gruesome, horrific story. Capesius assigned a Polish prisoner to oversee the melting of the dental gold into small bars, and they were weighed between 21 and 24 ounces each. And he sent small packages from Auschwitz to his sister in Vienna. It's amazing when you think of it. The theft from that loot and that gold and the people that were murdered in the gas chamber was by Capesius was probably, as you say, was worse than even a grave robber. I mean, it's just so gruesome to think that he had, I mean, if this man did go in to this job as a pharmacist, not wanting to do, you know, work at Auschwitz, he certainly turned into this absolute monster. And he also went through the suitcases as well, because initially he was meant to be go to the rail tracks and pick up equipment that might be useful for dental or hospital and uh, to see if anybody had any medicines with him that he could use and then store. And he didn't book anything in. You know, the Germans were very efficient. They liked things written down. But he didn't. There was so much chaos with all this stuff. And I think it's almost like the temptation to steal this, to steal this stuff. He probably was thinking to himself, you know, I'm in this godforsaken hole, excuse my language there, that I'm going to make the best of this and that I'll have something at the end of the war to show for it. Well, like you said, he felt victimized. So yes. here was his justification was, oh, I'm having a rotten war, and so I should get something out of it, and they don't need it anymore. And all the ways that, you know, the devil on your shoulder in cartoons is adorable, and it's something very real, I think, in life. You know, you have that whisper in your ear, and if there's ever a place that you could hear Satan's voice, it's right here in this place that they build that's you know more than hell on earth, as the people describe it. Well, you know, and also, you know, when we're talking about the gold coming from the teeth and the belongings, I think for me, uh, being Jewish as well, I thought to myself at some point, this could have been my grandparents, you know, this could have been someone from that period. It's just so disturbing to think there were so many people that worked at these camps that no one said this is wrong. No one. No one said it was wrong. It just went, you know, of course, as they would say, we were following orders. You have that picture in the book, the wedding bands, for instance. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. And not only the wedding bands, I think the disturbing pictures are where they had to take a break from the camp, the Nazis. And they would, and you would see them partying and playing music and smiling and drinking beer and playing the concertina like nothing, like nothing, like nothing was happening. You know, it was like, yes, let's go and take a break and go to the Solo River and let's have a good time for a bit. Let's dance and dance and sing and have picnics. And it's just so bizarre. It's almost very surreal when you think of it. Well, and that gold, they didn't pour it all in the ocean after the war. You don't burn it. You don't. Where is it? I mean, I'm glad that my wedding band is platinum. Not that they didn't steal platinum if you had it, but 
all that gold goes into the system. And I think that's one way, if anybody's wearing any gold, you think of it. You don't know what the history of it is. It all just stays around in different forms over the centuries. I think the wedding band, the reason why it's significant is that represents a union and a family. And it represents two lives, really, that are at least that have been ruined by that. When you think of, uh, I mean, just a box of just overflowing with them. Well, you know, for, for Capetius, the gold was good for him because after the war, he opened up his beauty store, you know, and a pharmacy. There was blood money that gave him his post-war life. It was real blood money, and there's no remorse there. You can, there's no remorse. He just carried on. That's what paid for everything, that gold, the death of all those people. Auschwitz is a graveyard. And anything that's taken from there, it's like a haunting memory. You know, every time you look at his pharmacy or you look at his beauty salons, that's blood, death and blood. Capesius does eventually come to trial. He has a long one in 1965. I know that those make for tough reading, as you and Gerald both know. That's a lot of research. That's a lot of hours spent going through things like court transcripts. As I said, though, that doesn't bog down your narrative here. Talk a little bit about how he finally does come to trial and how the fact that he's a liar who muddles the facts, lies to himself and everybody else, how was that a challenge when you were writing The Pharmacist of Auschwitz? You know, this trial was particularly difficult because there were a couple of dozen defendants and the trial lasted, you know, as you know, 18 months with hundreds of witnesses, including survivors and ex-Nazis. And compounding the problem was that there was no transcript as we are accustomed to in the U.S. Only testimony was recorded, and it was only made of available in piecemeal over recent years. So it was, yes, it was, it was, it was a big task. And uh, with the help of Gerald, as you said, I managed to match every statement of Capetius against the evidence and the testimony and the prosecutor introduced against him, for instance. The most damning was given then by dozens of camp survivors, many of them doctors who had worked with him, as we spoke before, professionally before the war when he was a bare sales rep. And so they recounted what they recounted when they had arrived at Auschwitz on the cattle cars that they instantly recognized Capetius and at the railhead selecting, they recognized him selecting the people and, uh, you know, to go to the right or go to the left life and death. And of course, Capetius denied all of that. His major defense was that the witness confused him with a Dr. Fritz Klein, a Nazi doctor, also born in Transylvania, in the same region as Capetius. Klein was dead because he had been executed after the war for war crime. (laughs) So in my research, I discovered there was little chance that there was any confusion between uh, Klein and Capetius, that being because the two did not remotely resemble each other. Capetius was 20 years younger than Klein, and Klein spoke with a free high German, while Capetius spoke with a German fluently, but noticeably with a foreign accent. So overall, he lied, tried dodging responsibility or confusing all the issues. And the other part that was very strange, he often wore dark glasses and he smiled and grinned constantly. The attorneys were were puzzled by it. He seemed detached from any of it. He never showed any moment of regret or remorse and casting himself, as I said previously, as the victim. But the, the smiling and the waving and the laughing was odd. I mean, there are actual pictures of him doing that. And it's like, what is he smiling at? What is he waving at? Why does he look so happy and joyful? I mean, as you see in the pictures, it's just odd. He's not even human anymore, really. I, I know that that's the slippery slope that gets us to where they were there throwing people in, in camps, but it's it's just how it feels. You, It's so different from anything we know yes. as a human being, having done these things and then laughing your way through the trial and mocking and complaining that, oh, I'm not getting to see my family. Come on. It's like, what yeah, yeah, planet yeah. are you from? In every way, shape and form, he had become the victim. Without any doubt, he was the victim, yes. 
you know. And it was almost like everything else never really happened. Nobody else was real. Like, that's a narcissist. No, nobody. Yeah, that's why the whole thing is very, very surreal in that respect. I mean, you know, it's like you said earlier, he was less than human. How does he fare in this trial, Victor Capesius? And what is the sum total of his punishment for his crimes? Well, seven of the 22 defendants that were charged with top counts of what the Germans call murder in, as a perpetrator, it could have resulted in life sentences. But Capetius was only one of seven who did not get convicted of the most serious charges. I mean, that shocked and angered the prosecutor who thought they had you know, presented a clear and convincing evidence that Capetius was culpable and deliberate of murder of any, of any other of the defendants. Instead, Capetius was found to have played a role in selecting and arriving prisoners to live and die at the railhead, and also for distributing the Zyklon B used for the gas chambers. So as a result, he was found guilty of the lesser charge of aiding and abetting murder, which he got nine years sentence. The prosecutors appealed the not guilty verdict on the top count, but were not successful in getting an appeal to rule in their favor. Instead, he ended up only serving two and a half years and was a free man by 1968. And he's not a pariah when he gets released from jail either. In fact, his pharmacy's business booms. Yes, you, booms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's like a celebrity. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. You write that he was very much that ordinary man that he liked to portray in public. Right. These are your words out of the book. But he was capable, as were many other Nazis like him, of extraordinary crimes. Ultimately, he chose the coward's path, preferring to live and die in denial, and that that is to his eternal shame. He spends those years of his life just completely unaware, completely not caring, not thinking for a moment. He's living on this mountain of bodies. He's building his prosperity for him and his family on that. I mentioned to you, we were going back and forth via email about the Man in the High Castle, the Amazon series, and how they look at just regular people here living under a brutal system, the occupation by the Imperial Japanese in the West and by the greater Nazi Reich in the Eastern United States, and how how everyday people can just come to accept these things and be pushed to them. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was a challenge to do this book and say, how am I going to make this relate to people? You met that challenge because we've heard it so many times that we can forget. We could say, well, that was a long time ago and they spoke right. a different language and they were a little bit strange. And sure, they looked the other way at murder and all these horrible things. And well, we're not Germans. We're not Nazis. We're not bad people. But it has exactly. happened over and over and over. And you start down that road. And this book explains how somebody who's just a pharmacist, that's the most basic job in a community. That's right up there with a doctor or a teacher or a farmer. That's the person you need to make things run. And that's the guy. Talk about anybody being corruptible who comes here and is able to play this key role in industrializing murder. Right. No, 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 it's right. And, you know, he lived this quiet life with his wife in a small German town. He had three adult daughters, one that followed him to become a pharmacist and lived nearby. His post-war business, as we just said before, pharmacy slash beauty and cosmetic salon, a great business, partly because he had become so famous. I think the most disturbing story for me, you know, at the end, is when he was released from prison and he made his first public appearance. It was at a local concert. And he walked in and the audience gave him a standing ovation. What does that tell you about the people? And we're talking, you know, this was 1968. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it is a wow, isn't it? It's, it's a real wow when you think of this. It's, and that, that's how the people responded, you know. So despite his freedom, he was a very, very bitter man. Very bitter man. Very bitter. I think he was very angry that he had to work at Auschwitz. Until his death in 85, you know, he was in full denial. And to think he lived to 1985, which is quite amazing, that he lived a quite a good, long, healthy life in some respect. Yeah, there was denied of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of victims. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing when you think of it, because we say six million, and that's just, you know, we're talking about the Jewish community. We're not even talking about the gay community, 
people that were considered unfit to live, the gypsies. And, you know, this was an, an amazing, it's astonishing when you think how many people were wiped out. What could have been what we might have missed out on, particularly all the doctors and the scientists, you know, could one of them today have had the cure for Alzheimer's or cancer? We wiped out so much. Or just regular people. I mean, they have a right to have their life. I mean, in Greece, 100,000 alone during the occupation starved to death, were starved to death. I mean, this wasn't accidental. All the food was going back home to loyal Nazis. So this was the thing. This is part of the war. And your eyes, I think it's so easy for us to just say we we have to turn away. We've read a book already. There are so many books on the war and the Holocaust. I thought that as I was reading it, that it's easier for us to look away and, you know, breathe in this myth. It was just a few evil men in it. They misled the likes of Victor Capesius, and he was sort of a a crackpot. Uh, But I I just think we use that word too many times, crackpot, or he was mad or she was mad. You know, I don't know what the answer is to that, but I just think we use it way, we just use it so loosely because it makes makes maybe us feel better, not you Mm -hmm. or me, I'm not saying. But maybe it makes people feel better to say that person was crazy, that's why they did that, you know. You don't always have to be crazy to do these horrific things. You dedicate the pharmacist of Auschwitz to your husband. You write to Gerald, who encouraged me to channel into this book my passionate belief that the crimes of the Holocaust never be forgotten, unquote. That's something that, since you researched this with your husband, you've researched these other books on this kind of subject matter. I mentioned Andrew Nagorski, author of The Nazi Hunters. He worked with his wife on that book, and the two of them also faced some of the same challenges, and I asked him about that. I said, how did the two of you ensure that you were able to leave those horrors, things at these trials, things like that girl dying? How do you leave those things in the place they belong with the book, in your office, and assure that it doesn't overwhelm your home life? How did you meet that challenge? Well, you get up and scream a lot, that's for sure. Um, It was very, very difficult at times. You know, we would talk about it at length, take walks, try and rationalize it with each other. Some of the most difficult parts were looking at the photos, like you had mentioned before about the rings and things. I had to go through thousands of photos from Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in D.C. You had to just pace yourself. You had to pace yourself. You had to realize that you were doing this for, for them. You were doing it for them, for the dead. You were doing it for the dead because if they could survive, then I could survive doing this. I had to do this for them. I had to survive to do it for those people. There was, and so if they could be strong, then I would have to be strong. And we just managed to get through it. And I think also... Because I had written with Gerald before on, you know, Mengele of Complete Story and the other topics within that area, we knew how to get through it together to pace ourselves. A brilliant part for me was when the story changed. And meaning it went from Capedia's world of darkness and terror, Auschwitz, to the bravery of the persistence in which two men, a camp survivor, and a German, the first Jewish prosecutor, managed 20 years after the end of the war to bring Capesius and a couple of other dozen Nazis responsible to murder at the camp trial. That part of the book was so invigorating to me so that the last few months of research and writing helped to make up for so much of those stretches where I found myself deep inside the darkness of the Holocaust. It was so rewarding in the end. You know, all those tears, all that screaming, all that heartbreak just started to melt away for that, I think. That was, that was it. And, you know, and as I said before, working with Gerald before on Mengele Complete Story, Hitler's Children, I'd been there before. And so I could pace myself at a certain pace. 
I want to close with something that follows up on that idea of there are so many books on the war and the Holocaust and how they can overwhelm us. It's easy to think that I've read a couple of books on it. I've read the Diary of Anne Frank in high school, let's say. So I've I've done what I needed to do for these people. I've, I've learned enough of the story. I'll know what to look out for. I want to ask you to make your pitch in closing to listeners who think that they know all they need to know about the Holocaust, about the genocide that occurred, about the war. Why should they pick up the pharmacist of Auschwitz and read the untold story? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Excellent. The problem for many listeners, I think, is the scope and the horror of the Holocaust. And the crimes are so sweeping and the number of victims so great that reading about it can be so overwhelming. But in this book, I tell a story of a single man who was not diabolical, evil, genius, or a sadistic Nazi henchman. Instead, this book is how a quite ordinary man capable of doing extraordinary crimes that are partly what makes his story so chilling. Uh, I mean, the feedback from early reviews and readers of advanced copies of the book is how much they relish the story of how the relentless effort of single survivor, Hermann Langbein, combined with the bravery of one of the German prosecutors, Fritz Bauer, eventually brought to pieces to trial to answer for his crimes. So in that way, my book is ultimately a little-known tale from the Holocaust that ends on a note of justice. That's all I can say. And, and I think that there are so many more of these stories around because as we started in the beginning with Mengele, that's the name we all know because it's been made into movies and TV shows and everything else. But there's more Capizis out there. He's not, just not the only one. There are more of them out there. It's just getting into the documents and the files and finding them. And if I had the time, which right now I do not because I'm working with Gerald on a new project with him, I would probably immerse myself in another one of these projects again. I, I mean, I can't wait to do it. You know, it's something I, to say I enjoy is not the right word for it, but it's, I'd like to chase another story like this. But I think the, you know, Capiz's story and the chase by Langbein and Bauer is an absolute unique one. Well, Patricia Posner, I was very honored that you had me be one of those advanced readers. I really did enjoy The Pharmacist of Auschwitz. Again, that's not the right word for it, but it is satisfying to see that he doesn't die a happy man, doesn't die fulfilled. Mm -hmm. It was important to bear witness to all of these murders, to this girl here, this nameless girl in the camp, for all of those who we don't know their names, we don't know who they were, but I'm always a big believer in saying that people in history, they're not just black and white photos. They were just like us. They yes. had happiness. They had sadness. They had things they wanted to do. They had their favorite colors, their favorite books. They had their yes. pet cats or they yes. didn't like cats or the, whatever they had in their life, but they were real people. And it's important for us to remember them. We owe it to them because we want to be remembered that way ourselves, don't we, when we're gone. So thank you for this untold story of the Third Reich. I wish you much success with the book and its mission to remind us that genocide starts not with monsters. It's not with other far off people. It starts with men, men who may be no different from our friendly neighborhood pharmacist. Mm. This book really is a little gem of a book. And I, again, thank you for sharing it with me. I hope people will check it out. And Dean, thank you so much for such a small fabulous interview. I really enjoyed it. I was a nervous wreck before I started, to tell you the truth, <laughs> because I'm not a pro at this at all. And you made it really interesting, and you helped me a tremendous amount. And I love the way you really understand what you just said at the end about these were people that could be like us. Well, thank you very much. It's really an honor that you came on, and I feel a responsibility here. You asked me to or I heard about this book. You didn't even get a chance to ask me. I saw you tweeted it out or Gerald tweeted it out. And I said, when are we going to talk about it? And you said, well, it's not coming till January. This was six months ago. And I said, well, I want to be front of the list, you know? And then I saw you had a first couple of things, the reads, and I emailed you again. And so I really nagged you a bit to come on and share. Oh, this you didn't me. nag me in the least. <laughs> it was worth the wait. 
it's wonderful. It really is. It's, it's marvelous to be able to talk to someone that really gets it and understands what I've done. And as we said before, it's not an easy, but enjoyed the book, understood the book, and realized this is a little gem of a book, without a doubt. Well, thank you. I'm a better person for having read it. And again, I hope people will go out there, pick it up, at least check it out, check you out at trishaposner.com and get an idea. Thank you very much. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thank you. Again, the book is The Pharmacist of Auschwitz, The Untold Story. As always, you could find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even bookmark the URL of our homepage for all your online purchases. When you click through to Amazon from historyauthor.com, Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of everything you buy at no additional cost to you. Once again, my overflowing thanks to Patricia Posner for joining me and for fleshing out our understanding of how the cogs of the Nazi death machine set about ushering in the new dark age Winston Churchill warned about. Pay her a visit at trishaposner.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-A-P-O-S-N-E-R. You can also find her on Twitter at Trisha Posner and at Auschwitz Farm and the Digit One. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're a subscriber on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. It sure means a lot. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. American officers rounded up civilians and forced them to atone, in a small degree, for what their countrymen had done. Protesting... With the stench of death in their nostrils, they were forced to remove the victims to a hillside grave for better burial. For the first time, America can believe what they thought was impossible propaganda. Here is documentary evidence of sheer mass murder. Murder that will blacken the name of Germany for the rest of recorded history. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west Sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.